It wasn't the result of some complex national conspiracy to rig voting machines. It was individual people in a tight-knit place, using their relationships to either make money or take revenge or both. It looks like this. In the midterm election... For the News and Observer, I'm Brian Murphy, your host for this special episode of Under the Dome. For the next few weeks, we'll be hosting a special edition of Under the Dome, focused on another podcast. Yes, it's it's all very meta. There is a new podcast from Serial and the New York Times called The Improvement Association, which is focused on Bladen County and the 2018 election fraud in the 9th Congressional District election there. So when they release a new episode, we'll release a new episode talking about some aspect of the event or the episode. Think of ours as a companion piece. I covered that race and its aftermath, including every second of the election board hearing. Our two guests today also covered aspects of that race and the fraud. I'm joined by the News and Observer's Will Doran and Carly Brousseau. First, let me say there may be some spoilers in this podcast. We're talking about recent history and events that were covered pretty extensively in various media outlets, but you may not know all of the details, and so I don't want you to think that we didn't warn you. That said, all three of us have listened to the first episode, which starts with a quick synopsis of the 2018 fraud and then gets into detail about the 2010 sheriff's race in Bladen County, which many think was the starting event for what ultimately happened in 2018. If you don't recall, in 2018, Republican Mark Harris's apparent U.S. House victory was never certified and a new election was ordered. Will, you and I were, were in the, the hearing, the trial that the State Board of Elections uh, held over this election, and... To say there was family drama, I think, would be an understatement. There were, there were multiple family dramas unfolding at the same time. Uh, Mark Elias, who is now sort of nationally known uh, Democratic attorney trying to overturn many election laws, was the presenter of the case largely for Dan McCready's campaign. And so I just want some of your recollections from what you remember during that time in, in the hearing. Yeah, it was uh, certainly family drama, uh, like, like you said, Brian, is a good way to describe it. I mean, you know, on, on one hand, you had uh, uh, some of the people who had worked with McCrate Dallas with uh, his, uh, you know, scheme that was being investigated, you know, saying that they were really drawn to him because he was sort of a, a family figure for them and a source of stability in, you know, a poor rural part of the state and just really a lot of you know, really personal detail there, you know, kind of, you know, how people might get drawn into this sort of thing. Then on the other side, of course, you had, um, like you said, Mark Harris and his family, uh, you know, and uh, the the testimony involving his son, you know, which is obviously a a huge part of it and something that I I think this podcast will probably come back to in later episodes. (laughs) You know, it was also just really a, a circus atmosphere when you were there. I mean, it went on for, God, a, a week or more, you know, days and days of, you know, just national news, TV vans parked all throughout downtown Raleigh, crammed into this little, you know, building in downtown, people fighting over power cords. And, uh, you know, you had Dallas Woodhouse, who's at the time the executive director of the Republican Party, just, you know, sprinting from reporter to reporter, giving them quotes, pushing back on things, you know, that the, the investigators were saying about the case until it all flipped. And Mark Harris, you know, said, uh, no, never mind. Uh, there is something, you know, there and he was going to step down and, the, you know, that just, you know, completely threw everything into a tizzy. Um, so I, I'm excited to see where the uh, the podcast goes on on that angle. Uh, but obviously it really, like you said, uh, it's going to rewind about a decade uh, to when this all really started. And, you know, it's not like this 
whole um, machine that was operating down in Bladen County just came out of nowhere. Um, and so this is uh, this podcast is a, a really interesting look, at least from the first episode that we've heard on on how that really happens and how it snowballs from you know maybe something small in 2010 to big national headlines in 2018. Carly, you you actually went to Bladen County, um, one of many reporters from from local and national outlets to descend on on that small county. What was it like to to go to Bladen County and try to talk to people involved in this? Some some voters whose whose ballots were, were turned in, maybe against not against their wishes, but but without their knowledge. Um, what was it like on the ground there in Bladen County? It was fascinating. I thought that Zoe Chase did a great job explaining what the landscape is like and that it's a place that's very full of rumors and kind of thrives on these rumors. And you often, I found myself being pulled aside into, you know, a corner or to some kind of more protected place while somebody who's a total stranger to me confided something in me that was initially really hard to uh, process. But I went down my first trip, I went to an apartment complex where there had been a lot of absentee ballots. And I just started knocking on doors and instantly I was hearing about McCray Dallas. It was very um, top of mind for people and, and people had a lot to say. I remember throughout our coverage, um, and this gets pointed out in in the podcast, but throughout our coverage, we, we focused a lot on McCray Dallas. He was the one being investigated. Almost as soon as you brought up McCray Dallas to, to many, you got, what about the Bladen Improvement Association, the Bladen County Improvement Association? They were sort of joined uh, together in many ways. And I think uh, the podcast does a good job of kind of explaining how how they did become so intertwined, uh, or at least in, intertwined in the minds of, of many there in Bladen County. Uh, one of the reasons I want to have you on this episode of the podcast, Carly, is you've done a lot of work on a lot of reporting on on sheriffs and sheriff races around the state. And, and I think it's hard um, to recognize just how powerful sheriffs are in many of the counties throughout North Carolina. Um, certainly they have power in, in Wake County and other large counties, but in rural counties like Bladen, um, I think in the podcast, it said the equivalent to a king in many ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's the right metaphor. I mean, there have been counties in North Carolina that I have been in, um, especially reporting on sheriffs, where it really feels like a fiefdom. And part of that can be the long tenure of sheriffs. But it's also just, um, as Zoe Chase points out, um, that they're the keeper of secrets in a lot of ways. I mean, they have a way of making problems go away. Um but even if that's not their function, even if there is a more even hand, they just know an awful lot about an awful lot of people. And that's, that is power as well. Um, a lot of, uh, especially in small places, you know, a family can dominate. <laughs> um, sort of kinship ties are really important. And that's something that's very true in Bladen County, part of McCray Dallas's power. He's not the sheriff, but he's obviously very influential, as I'm sure we'll talk about at great length. But it's because he's related to a whole lot of people. I was talking to a very influential sheriff recently in another rural county, and he described pursuing his first job as a sheriff's deputy. And it was in a county that he had not grown up in. And the sheriff at the time said to him, this is back in the 70s, but I think it can the logic applies today. The sheriff said, Sonny boy, why would I hire you? You don't have any kin around here to vote for me. 
So the, the anecdote was offered to me as, you know, a problem with a political system writ large, but I think it's important to think about that in terms of law enforcement. People have a hard time evaluating how well law enforcement is doing. And there's a lot of fear and distrust um, depending on your identity within a community about what that power can do to you. Well, speaking of power, you, you've seen sort of the power that the sheriffs and the sheriff's association has in the state legislature. I mean, that's another another area where, where sheriffs sort of hold some power. Absolutely. They hold a lot of power at the state legislature. And it, it really goes to what Carly was just saying. I mean, in in basically every county in the state, you know, there's 100 counties in North Carolina, probably 80 to 90 of them. The sheriff is one of the biggest employers in the whole county. Um, you know, it'll go, you know, the county school system and then Walmart and then the sheriff. Usually maybe if there's a hospital, the hospital will be up there, too. But, you know, the sheriff has a, a huge amount of people. And, yeah, the hiring and firing in sheriff's departments is very political. I mean, anytime that you do see a turnover after a sheriff's election, you see a lot of deputies get fired if they had been political supporters of the old guy, a lot of new deputies getting hired if they had been political supporters of the new guy. And any smart politician up the food chain, whether they're at the state legislature or Congress, knows that in a county, the sheriff has this kind of built-in base of all of these folks who work for him and who are on his side politically. And, you know, if he decides to try to align his people with you or against you, that can make a really big difference in what you're able to accomplish come election time. So, yeah, you know, down at the state legislature, the, the sheriff's association does have a, a lot of power behind the scenes in deciding what goes on. And it also gives, you know, just individuals who are sheriffs, you know, a lot of access to politicians, whether they're at the state level, federal level, whatever. If you're a higher up politician, it makes a whole lot of sense to, to know your local sheriff. And so that gives a whole lot of impetus for people to want to become the sheriff. And so, you know, we see these really, really contentious races for county sheriffs, which is uh, obviously something that uh, this podcast is going to really dive into in detail. Yeah, I, I've noticed even uh, people running for Congress, there, there are a lot of touting of sheriff's endorsements when, when you run for the U.S. House of Representatives. Well, you, you mentioned these contentious elections for sheriff, and that's sort of where this serial podcast begins. In 2010, there was a, a, a black sheriff's deputy named uh, Prentice Benston um, who running for, for county sheriff. And he won the Democratic primary, which in Bladen County at the time was, was basically the equivalent of winning the, the general election, um, by a few hundred votes in the Democratic primary, defeating a, a white, um, sheriff's deputy that was running. And th that's where this podcast starts. And, and a large part of the reason, or at least that we're led to believe that he won, um, in this case was because of the Bladen County Improvement Association doing a great absentee ballot, uh, program. Uh, there was only one polling place in the county. It was far away from the black center of population in the county. And so in order to get those votes counted, now you're talking about they had a, a primary election, a primary runoff, and then a general election. It took some, you know, it took some organizing to get it done. The fact that a small number of votes can determine a county level race makes, makes a absentee ballot program like that even more effective. Will, which is something that, that we've talked about that, you know, in a, in a small rural county, not a ton of media attention, a few hundred votes can, can change who becomes the quote unquote king of the county. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if you look 
uh, nationwide. Uh, actually, the, the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank, has done a really extensive report on basically all known cases of voter fraud, election fraud, dating back to like the 1940s. Um, and there's, you know, a few hundred cases uh, since the 40s nationwide. And if you just kind of scroll through that report that they have, it's almost entirely school board races, small town mayor's races, maybe some sheriff's races. Because, yeah, I mean, it's much easier if, <laughs> if, if you're going to try to commit fraud and swing an election. It's much easier to swing 50 votes, uh, you know, if you only need to win by 50 votes than it is to swing 50,000 votes, you know, which might be the margin in a race for Congress. Um, obviously, in the, in the ninth district race in 2018, it was not that close. It was under a thousand votes. But you still have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people voting in a congressional race, whereas in these local races, you know, you'll have a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people voting. And I think part of it, too, like you mentioned, is sheriff's races are very low turnout. Even in urban counties, uh, you don't really see the same amount of attention paid to sheriff's races uh, by voters or by the media, frankly. Um, and that's just obviously much, <laughs> much more amplified in rural counties. Carly, you, you, like I said earlier, spent time in Bladen County. I think one thing the podcast gets at is this divide between where the black population lived and, and maybe where the white population lived and, and the fact that um, so much of the politics was determined by what race you were or, or, you know, sort of what group you affiliated with was, was kind of based on your race. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw in Bladen County when it comes to comes to the issue of race like that? It was definitely very divided. And it seemed to be that there was certainly an assumption that white people voted Republican and black people voted Democratic and that there was not very much swing and that white people who voted Democratic and were very vocal about it were given um, an extra dose of disparagement. I covered also the sheriff's race in Columbus County at the same time, which was very close and had similar racial dynamics. There was a Democrat who was Black, and there was a Republican who was white. And the vote count was very close. And I went to some hearings related to that local election board hearings and also a trial. And um, it, the division there was even clearer. And partly that may be that the the actual population was closer to 50-50 um, black and white in the county. But in the courtrooms where these hearings were held, the people in the audience were divided straight down the middle. Half of the room was filled with black people and half of the room was filled with white people. And there was whoever the judge or person serving in a judge-like role in these proceedings would have very stern warnings. And there were shouting matches, there were fights in the hallway. It was very contentious. At this time in 2010, doesn't seem that that long ago. But at this time, it was it seemed like there were there were white Democrats and black Democrats. It's it's amazing how much things have changed in in the, the eight years since, or or now the the eleven or twelve years since. That divide is now a party divide as well as as a racial divide. In the first and the first episode certainly focuses on 2010, but we know the history and we kind of know where where it's going to lead. I thought one of the interesting things that, that Zoe's commentary in the episode said was that everyone in the town feels like someone is cheating them and that you sort of get in the psychology a little bit. If you think the other guy is cheating, it makes it a whole lot easier to cheat 
yourself. If you think if you think everybody in, in town is doing something wrong, then it's a whole lot easier for you to decide. Well, hey, the only way we're going to win is is if we do something. Did you get that sense when you were in Bladen that everybody thought somebody else was doing something something nefarious? Absolutely. I mean, to what I was saying at the beginning about being pulled aside, a lot of those conversations were, well, you're asking about us, but let me tell you about the other side. Um, I think that psychology is very. Um, firmly entrenched. I mean, it's kind of um, sort of like a tribal quality to it. And again, it's also very personal. I was aware that there were these histories that I didn't know. Um, I'm thinking of, I, I went to McCray Dallas's house and um, tried to, and I knocked on the door and I talked to a couple of women inside and suddenly I, there was just a like a band of teenage boys <laughs> that were, you know, trapping me in the driveway. Um, and it definitely, I mean, I'm a reporter in a rural area and they didn't recognize me. So maybe the assumption that something nefarious was going on was more um, built into the situation. But I was amazed by how quickly there would be like a mobilization if there was a perception that something was strange, whether it was cheating or just out of the ordinary. Yeah. Will, you know, certainly we kind of know where all this is, is leading to, but what struck you about the first episode and, and where it kind of began? You know, the it, it makes sense that if this is kind of where the, uh, the McCray Dallas story started, it makes sense that it was in this small race. The The fact that there even was this um, alleged fraud in the congressional race was making headlines nationally just because it is so rare. Um, you know, usually you don't see bad actors make it up to that big level. It's usually really kept down at the local level and it's usually gray area. <laughs> Obviously there's always lawyers involved and, you know, so, uh, you know, anyone can spin it however they want, but, you know, you see in a neighbor in Robinson County, uh, you know, there's been plenty of uh, rumors over the years of, uh, you know, similar kind of election trickery and misdeeds and they've had to redo a few uh, city council elections in places like Pembroke. But, you know, when we were reporting all this, I talked to one of the guys whose supporters were accused of lying about their addresses to vote in his city council race in Pembroke. And he said, oh, you know, that was just politically motivated to pick it on my people. And, you know, they were just temporarily out of a home and they were living with family and they were inside the district, even though they had lived outside of the district and they're just picking on poor people because they're my supporters, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, <laughs> the, those are the kinds of cases that you usually hear about when you hear about photo fraud is, you know, oh, there are like six people whose addresses don't necessarily seem to add up. It's not the case where you see, oh, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of absentee ballots uh, you know, all getting dumped off at the same time at the county office by one guy. And, you know, that is really what, what's going to be interesting as this uh, series progresses is to figure out how it goes from that small level of, you know, just one county local race to a multi-county U.S. congressional race. So I'm interested to uh, to see where she takes us. And I, the, I'll wrap up with that. The, the fact that 2018 seems so long ago. Uh, that's pre-pandemic. That's, you know, uh, you know, in the Trump administration. I mean, it just seems 2018 seems eons ago. 
But at the same time, it seems like this issue of voter fraud and election fraud and absentee ballots is is very much in the news and and voting rights are very much in the news. And so um, this is landing at at a really opportune time uh, for us to be discussing all these issues about about absentee ballots and and voter fraud and and what should be done or what can be done or what is, uh, you know, what is, as they would say in Bladen County, kind of rumors. Um, so that'll wrap up, wrap up our special episode of Under the Dome about the Serial Podcast on the Improvement Association. We'll have a new episode of Under the Dome for each episode of the Serial Podcast. And we've got plenty of other coverage planned at newsobserver.com. For the News and Observer, I'm Brian Murphy saying see you next time on Under the Dome. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.